Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. I am wearing something a little bit different today. That's true. Yeah, thank you. I actually am getting that from a lot of women. Like, I, I don't know what the deal is, but I woke up and my daughter said to me, Wow, pretty shirt. I'm like, thank you. And she's like, normally guys don't wear fancy things. I said, yeah, that's true. Today I'm wearing flowers. I'm told that the reason we're doing this, I'm just going to read the script because it's the only way I can possibly understand or explain it, is that even though it's still cold and gray in Michigan, we can be sure of our hope in the coming Savior. So by violating the rules of fashion, we demonstrate how we are in the world, but not of it. So there you go. Today I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and it actually feels pretty good. It's nice to be in cool clothes up here under the warm lights. My name's Jeremy. Welcome here. We're glad you're here to worship God with us today. And uh, we are on the very last sermon in the book of James. And so that's exciting for me, because I look back over this series and say, wow, there's a lot of cool stuff. Maybe I should have left an extra day to summarize everything, but today we're just going to be looking at the last two verses. And there's a title on the uh, bulletin, probably because I picked the titles like six months ago, but if I were to retitle it today, I would entitle it, Why Be a Rescuer? Why Be a Rescuer? So to explain that, I'm coming from the world of children's literature again. And I have uh, one of our little books with us. You can see it's nice and chewed on and on the edges, and it's a nice hard cardboard book. There's a picture of it here up on the screen. It's entitled To the Rescue. It's one of these little books with three words per page that you read uh, before you go to bed. So I know that opening illustrations are supposed to keep you awake, so don't go to sleep during this book. But let me read to you a couple lines of this, and you'll kind of get the idea. It says this, Help! Someone fell and skinned their knee. Is there a doctor to the rescue? Yes, it's me! Help! A swimmer is too far out at sea. Is there a lifeguard to the rescue? Yes, it's Paul Bork. He's in the front row. No, yes, it's me! Help! Someone lost their keys. Is there a policeman to the rescue? Yes, it's me. And then it goes through, you know, ski patrol and uh, all sorts of other things. And it says, rescue workers help people like me and you. When I grow up, I'll help too. There you go. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, it's interesting as you read this book. You know, it's cute. And there's cute little pictures of firemen holding cats and doctors with band-aids and policemen with lost keys. But when you think about it, is a doctor really being paid to put a band-aid on somebody's knee? Is a policeman's primary responsibility to go after keys? What about a lifeguard? Are they there just to soak up the sun? And here we read about these fanciful and sort of imaginary rescues, and they're so cute and they're so nice, and yet when you really think about it, what is real rescue like? It's messy, right? It's dirty. It's dangerous. It's risky. It's costly. You know, if you see a paramedic show up at your house, it's probably not a good day for you, right? (laughs) 
They're not coming on your best day of the year. The policemen don't carry guns because people that they're chasing are friendly. Surgeons are not there to put a Band-Aid on your knee. They're opening you up and there's blood and it's getting dirty and yada, yada, yada. It's gross. Most people don't even want to know or look at what they're doing. Rescuers, we admire for so many reasons. They're selfless, they're, they're brave, they're willing to get dirty, they put others' needs above their own. And there's all these things that we can look at and say, wow, these are tremendous qualities, but it's this amazing mix of being willing at the same time to take tremendous risk and get dirty. And yet, to do so for somebody else. And so what do we do? Well, on occasion, we say, you know, everybody stand up and clap and cheer. Or we might pin a little ribbon on their chest or give them a medal or accommodation plaque. Come on up. Thanks. You know, we're really glad you ran into that burning building and got third degree burns and destroyed your lungs and came out with somebody's cat. You know, we're, we're, here's a plaque. <laughs> you know, what kind of motivation is that? A plaque, a pin, a ribbon. That's not a reward. What is the reward for a real rescuer? I think the reward is not the plaque, pin, metal, ribbon, whatever. But instead, the reward is seeing that person whom they value, not the keys, not the cat, but a real person, kiss their loved one, hold their child, you know, live to see another day. People who are in danger are worth rescuing and worth risking your life for. Other things are not. James is saying here at the end of this book, look guys, there's a lot of just, I don't know what nice word to call it, but yucky stuff that happens in life. And people get all tangled up in it. Sin. It's a mess. And it could cost them their very life. It's dangerous. It's not just a little band-aid that we're talking about. It's not lost keys and it's not a cute kitty up in a tree, but it's literally a matter of life and death. James says, John says, there's a sin that leads unto death. The wages of sin is death. God does not like this stuff and he will not let sin go unpunished. Sin is a real problem and if you're flirting with it and playing with it or starting to get involved, you are in danger of dying. You need a rescuer. Here in the last two verses of James chapter 5, James is going to explain what that looks like. Why rescue something? You know, what's the point? Why in the world would we do something like this? There are three, three sections of this that I'll walk you through today, and it's basically going to be these. It's going to be the cost, the correction, and the reward. The cost, the correction, and the reward. The cost is to, just to be clear, the cost is both to the victim and to the rescuer. Because to the victim, you know, they may be in danger of death, but the rescuer might inhale smoke getting them out of the building, right? It's costly. The correction is what is needed, and that is for the victim and from the rescuer. So for and from there, the correction. And then finally, there is the reward, the reward. And actually, the reward is for both as well. 
So let's take a look at the last two verses of this letter or epistle from the Apostle James, Jesus' half-brother, and uh, see what he has to say about rescuers. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. All right, so let's begin with the first one, which is the cost. In this verse, I think you heard the words, will save his soul from death. The his there is referring to the person who is in trouble, the sinner. Their soul is in danger of death. Well, that's kind of a strange thing to say, and I know depending on where you're at in your uh, journey, your spiritual journey, some people really struggle with that. I talked to someone the other day, and they're like, yeah, I just can't get over this idea of, you know, God, like, killing people and punishing and stuff. It just doesn't seem very nice. I'm like, yeah, so what do you do with Hitler? You know, <laughs> what do you do with evil? Is there ever a reckoning? Is evil left unchecked forever and nothing goes unpunished? Surely there has to be some justice in the world. Where do you find it if there is never a righteous God? So the Bible lays it out very clearly in its worldview, whether you accept it or reject it. This is the way it presents itself. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You sin, you die. That's the deal. Well, God is pretty clear on that one. There's no uncertain terms. Sin equals death. Well, wait a minute. How, how does that work? Because, uh, well, let me show you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It's kind of where it all began. It says this. Before there was sin in the world, in this perfect environment, in this wonderful spot, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. <clears throat> and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens. They disobeyed God and they uh, consumed the fruit, both Adam and Eve. And as a result, the way theologians talk about it, or people who, who think about God and Scripture say, that was what's called the fall. In other words, at that point in time, the first sin ever came into the world. That's when sin, boom, entered God's creation. As a result, God's word is true and there was death. But wait, wait, wait. Adam and Eve lived. They didn't die right then. What do you mean? Well, initially what happens is the spiritual death at which they are separated and alienated from God. And then subsequently and consequently as a result of that, sin and sickness and pain and sorrow and suffering enter the world and eventually they die a physical death from all of that. And so both deaths happen, one immediately, the other um, gradually, and sin has entered into the world. That's how we explain bad things. So what Christians say, where does evil come from? Right there. <laughs> That's where it came into our world. And that is why Romans, in such a beautiful way, in chapter 5, verses uh, 11 and following sort of sets these parallels side by side. He's like, look, there's one man named Adam. There's another man named Jesus. 
(laughs) And look what each one did. One brought death, the other brought life. Adam, this is his job, therefore it says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is where we're at. Without Christ, you're dead, even though you may be alive. You are spiritually dead, and you will eventually physically die. The death rate is still one for one, right? It's 100%. Everybody dies because everybody sins. So the Bible makes it very, very clear that the cost of sin is death. So in James here, we have this statement which says, you're rescuing someone or you're saving their soul from death. Now, this is going to get a little bit more in depth, but I think if you hang with me, you'll follow through because depending on where you're at, this question can be really significant. So, for example, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, uh, we like, you know, I, I am of the theological position that says, you know, your sins are forgiven and you're good to go because God is in you and he won't let you go. But, what happens is people will come to this text and say, whoa, what does this mean? Danger, losing their soul, death. Does that mean like Christians can go to hell and stuff like that? Or what's going on here? And then people go back and forth and they say, okay, so is it physical death? Like what happens eventually? Or spiritual death? What happened initially with Adam and Eve? Or what are we talking about here? And so what's interesting is that the text itself sort of leaves it vague. It could go either way if you just read this single text. And personally, I think James is doing that on purpose. And the reason is this, is because if you are a believer, then there is a warning in it for you. And the warning um, is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. And what it's doing is basically saying, hey, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in other words, if God is your father and he cares about what you do and he doesn't want you to fall into a pit, then when you go the wrong way, he's going to stop you. And even if he has to do so dramatically, you know, if your kids are running out in the street, you dive and knock them over and skin their knee you don't really worry about it. You're going to hurt them so they don't kill themselves. That's called discipline. That's what the Lord does for you. If you're going the wrong way, you might get in trouble for it. That doesn't mean he doesn't like you. That means he loves you. You see the difference? He disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're going the wrong way, God might hurt you. And I know that seems scary, but that's true. But it's better to be hurt than end up dead. And if you're running for the street, he might tackle you and knock you down. And if you keep pulling, he's going to hold you down. (laughs) And if you keep pulling, he's going to put you in a headlock. And if you keep pulling, you're eventually going to run out of breath and you're going to go to heaven. And that's the discipline process that God is defining in some of these passages. So you see that in 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians 11. It's referring to the Lord's Supper, but I want to show you an example of when God actually kills people who are Christians. It says this, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Whoever eats... Therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Not a place you want to be. Let a person then examine themselves and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill. That's the first part of that process. And some didn't get the message and even died. God killed him. Because he disciplines those whom he loves. And he's not going to let them go to hell. He's going to take them to heaven before they get there. So he's stopping them on purpose. Dead in their tracks. God killed them. Now we have some examples of this in scripture. Perhaps I don't really know if these people are Christians or not. Because uh, I can't read uh, people's hearts. But. One example is Ananias and Sapphira for the note takers. That's uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following. These people lied to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they died. (laughs) And God just killed them. Straight up. And John, I already quoted this verse earlier, says, If anyone sees his brother uh, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. But to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, and to those that do that. Now, there is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say that you should pray for that. So there is the reality in Scripture held out even in the New Testament. There's no real distinction between new and old here. Is that God might actually stop your life if you're in sin. So he doesn't want you to continue down that track. Hopefully you'll listen to him before that, but he may have no other choice. So there is a possibility of physical death. That's a warning to believers. Guys, watch out. God could discipline you. You don't want to get the rod. So shape up. But there's also the spiritual thing here. And in reality, what happens is many exegetes or students of Scripture will point out that when you look at this text, most often James uses the word death to refer to spiritual death. And so, for example, in James chapter 1, going back earlier in the book, he said, he's talking about temptation. He says, when each person is tempted, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That's just what happened to Adam and Eve, right? They are lured and enticed by their own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So in my mind, what's happening here in this text is, is James is saying, hey, hey, you believers, watch out. <laughs> Don't get to a spot where God might kill you. And to those of you who profess to be believers but really aren't, watch out. Because <laughs> you could be all the way on your way to hell. Examine yourself. Check it out and see. There is a real danger here. This is not a band-aid on the knee. This is not the lost key or the kitty in the tree. This is life and death. Sin is no joke. You serve an infinitely holy God and he cannot accept sin. No matter how big or small, it doesn't matter. It's not cool with him. You can't get away with it. He sees everything. He knows everything and he will hunt it down. So at the end of the day, you need, you must get right with him. Otherwise, the consequences are far worse. So get it right. Go to God. Believers, watch out. Unbelievers, turn, repent. This is the message of this warning here in James chapter 5. Now, when you think about that, there's the cost that I just outlined. I outlined the cost to the uh, unbeliever and to the believer. But what we're also saying is that you as a believer should be willing to go in and rescue that person who's in trouble. Right? Right? 
That's why you share your faith. It's because, yeah, it may cost you something, a little embarrassment, a little whatever, but it's better than them going to hell. It may cost you a little, but what's the alternative? You heard one of the youth say last week, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about Jesus? And I would take that one step further and say, how much do you have to hate someone in order to let them continue in their sin? You know, do you want them to die? How much do you hate them? (laughs) Help them out. But why don't we? Why wouldn't we help someone out? Well, there's a cost to the rescuer too, right? I don't want to get involved. That's dirty. That's messy. They might get mad at me. Things are going to look poorly. All of a sudden, politics come in and blah, 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 blah. And there's a risk and there's a cost. And just easier to let them go. They're probably not going to listen to me anyways. I mean, what influence do I have? When have they ever listened to me? Not going to happen, you know? And that, in fact, might be true. God sent prophets to sinful people all the time in the Old Testament, and they didn't listen. But the prophets still did their job. And God could justly say then, I warned you. (laughs) You know, I sent my prophet. I knew you would sin, but I told him to say, don't. He did, and you still did. There it is. This is actually encouraging to me as I sometimes get in either uh, confrontation with sin or counseling issues or whatever. And I can be talking to someone and say, don't go do that. Don't go do that. Don't go do that. And they go do it. And I go home. I'm like, honey. I have no idea. I might stink at this. I mean, I must just stink. I told them not to. They went and did it, and they aren't coming back to me ever again. I don't get it. And the encouragement there is that it's not that you stink, but in fact, you did what you're supposed to do. You warned them. Now it's God's job to take care of the rest. In other words, what we're telling you today is, hey, guys, give it a try. I know it's going to cost you something. I know that... It will cost you something, but this person is in danger of death. Go after him. Go after him. I'm going to tell you a little story from lifeguarding because, believe it or not, that's actually a little bit of my background. Uh, in high school and college, I, well, I didn't swim competitively in high school or college, but I did a little bit earlier than that. So I became a strong swimmer, and lifeguarding was a way to make money off of that skill. So don't think of it. Let me be clear. If you listen to my kids, they think I'm like Baywatch guy, like diving in with sharks and doing amazing things. That's not true. I'm like the, you know, teenager college kid with the silly ring buoy walking around going, tweet, walk, please. Okay, so that's about the extent of the drama. Occasionally, I flipped over a little kid in their, you know, floaty. That's about it. But there actually was some, there was a few interesting things that happened. And I remember the training going into it. And one of the things they tell you is when you're going to rescue something, someone, often they're in a panic mode. So they're not thinking logically. So you're not walking up and tapping them on the shoulder and saying, Hi, I'm here. It's going to be okay. Let's go this way. What's happening then is they're freaking out. I mean, life and death struggle. They are crazy. So if you swim up to them on the surface of the water, just approach them from the front They see something that's above the water, and what are they going to do? They're going to grab onto it. They're going to jump on your head and pull you down and hold you 
until either you die or they do. So they're saying, don't do that. What you do is you come from behind, you dive, you swim under, you look up, and then you come at their back, and just about when you get there, you nail them in a, basically a full Nelson or just about a headlock. You go around either both arms or one arm in the chest and brace them, and then get ready to roll a few times because they're going to be flipping until they wear out. And then when they do, you hold them up on their hip, start swimming like this, pull them to the side, and jump up on the deck, both totally waterlogged. So one time, there was this guy at the pool, and he was an adult. And most of the time, when you're making a save, in my experience, it's the little kids, and you can kind of tell who's going to have trouble, because they're going to the end of the board like this. You know, they're scared, and so you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat. You got your shirt off already. You're ready to go. Like, okay, if they freak out, no problem. I can carry them in with one hand. Well, this is this full-grown adult male. I'm a teenage kid, and he goes barreling off the diving board. Just, rah, boom. And I think, ha-ha, you know, because there's actually a lot of guys in the summer that like to play tricks on the lifeguards, and they think they're really funny, and so you're just kind of like, ha-ha, you know, funny. And he pulls up out of the water, and he's like, bah! and I'm like, yeah, good one. I'm like, wait, good one? <laughs> Not a good one. Whoa, this is for real. And so sure enough, dive in, sound the whistle blast, go under him, looking up at him, thinking, boy, this guy's a lot bigger than me. He can kill me. I want to make sure I come up on the right side, you know, swimming, 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 coming up behind him. And I start to grab onto him, and he turns to grab me. And as soon as he did, my buddy John from the other side grabbed onto him as well. And so basically it looked like, you know, two policemen or bodyguards like carrying someone out of a service or something like that. They're, we lifted him up off the ground. His feet are pedaling, but we're just swimming him in. There's nothing he could do. Each of us had each arm basically in a, like an arm bar, and we weren't letting him get anywhere. And bloom, we threw him up on the side. It's all done. Turns out he was an adult physically, but not necessarily fully developed in other areas. And so he just went plowing off and didn't take the swim test because he was an adult. We didn't think an adult would just run off and do that, but so it was. So we put him up on the side, and it was a good day, and what it shows me about this whole thing is, you know, when someone's struggling in sin, they may not even know what's going on, right? And they're freaking out, and they're in panic mode, and they think they're going to die, and they might if they go too far. And you want to go in and get them, but you need to be cautious about your approach. You need to think about how you're doing this. You need to be careful. And that's why James is saying, hey, watch out that you, you too could be tempted. You dive into the deep end with this, and who knows what's going to happen. It's going to be messy. It's going to be risky. It's going to be costly. You could get scratched right across the face. You know, they could pull out your hair. There's stuff that's going to happen. You've got to hold on tight. It's going to be difficult. And hopefully, if you're in a good church, then your loving brothers and sisters in Christ are not going to let you be the only one swimming in the deep end, but they're going to jump in too. And before long, there's three or four people on this one person. And then you can pull them out with no trouble at all. Because... As a team, it's a whole lot easier than an individual. And you grab onto them, and they turn around to grab you, and someone else grabs them from behind. That's the way you work with sin. Yeah, it's risky, it's costly, it's dangerous, but man, they're dying. And you got to jump in there and try to go get them, and hopefully, eventually, your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to do the same thing. 
Work together as a team, and that's what the church is supposed to look like. This is the way one commentator says it. It's a beautiful picture of the body of the Christ. It says, the restoration ministry of a truly biblical church is a wondrously effective part of the church's work and desperately needed today. James's epistle or letter is asking the church for a church that is intimately and lovingly involved with one another, encouraging and challenging one another in the Christian life, and exercising the vigilance to know when one of the flock is, stranger, is strained and in danger of falling. Man, somebody's drowning, help them out. Throw them a line. You might even have to jump in and risk your own skin. It's worth it. Not for the metal, not for the pen, not for the whatever, but to see them walk out and live and love and learn. This is the call of the church. So then, therefore, my brothers, if anyone among you is wandering from the truth, bring them back. Bring them back. Bring them back. What are some specific sins that might cause someone to lead, you, lead someone to death? I've kind of already hinted at that, but let me give you a few that are pretty easy to nail down. Uh, rejecting Jesus, that's a big one. You know, you reject Jesus, you're on your way to hell. Lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira, clearly show us that's one you don't want to do. Consistent and willful sin is another one I'll say, and that's not a specific sin, but a category. And there's a couple, if you're taking notes, here's a couple lists that are given in Scripture. Now, lists in the literary genre of Scripture are not always intended to be exhaustive. So you may look through this list and say, oh good, I'm, I'm clear. <laughs> Don't have that one. No, 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 these are just examples. So there's more, but these are definitely ones you don't want to do. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 gives a list of sins that I think will lead you to death. You can look that one up. And also Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 lists seven things that the Lord hates. And he means hate. He doesn't mean slightly disapproves of. He hates God hates sin. So those are some sins. Now, that's the cost. So what is the correction that's needed? What is the correction that's needed? Verse 19, fortunately, tells us, James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone needs to bring him back. Key word here is truth. Truth. I hope you've noticed for a long time this is a big deal with me. I emphasize truth. I teach truth. I'm dedicated to the truth of Scripture. And that's important because the devil is the exact opposite. Right? He's the e exact opposite. We talked about it earlier in James when we said diabolo means the accusation thrower or the accusation hurler. He has the record and shot put for lies, if you will. He just throws them and throws them and throws them. Those negative thoughts you hear, those things that aren't true, the accusations that bring you down from others, from yourself, all the stuff bouncing around between your ears, those negative things, that's from Satan. That's sin. And you got to get so familiar with the truth that you can come to the point where you start hearing those things and you say, no, stop, that's a lie. You're not good enough. Well, you're right, but Jesus is. 
And I'm married to him and one with him. So when I got married, all of a sudden his checking account became mine. And now I can spend righteousness and forgiveness like a maniac. Because I'm rich. And he's got plenty to cover all your crud. So get out of my life, devil. That's a lie. I know better than that. Get lost, you liar. He's a liar. He's going to lie at you. He's going to cut you down. He's going to use anything he can. You're not good enough. Your mama didn't love you. Your dad didn't approve. Your friends don't think you're cool. You're ugly, fat, smart, dumb, whatever. It's not true. You're married to Jesus. <laughs> what is he to say? Think Christ is not good enough? Think the Savior's blood is not enough to cover you from all your sin? You think Jesus' resurrection is not more powerful than this stupid little demon? Where is it at? You got to know enough of the truth to be able to fight the lies. And if you don't read your Bible, if you don't memorize Scripture, if you're not educated in the text, then you got nothing to say to him when he comes hurling stuff at you. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe you're right. That's not the position I want to be in. Oh, fight back. Come on, man. Shield the face, sword of the spirit. Whack, whack, whack. <laughs> Get out of here, devil. That's not the gospel. The gospel is of peace. It gives me a breastplate of righteousness. And the fiery darts sort of just bounce off then. You need to know the truth. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I'll go ahead and read it to you just for fun. I'm kind of watching my time, but Ephesians 4 says this. This is, this is the importance of truth, so let me show you how the apostle lays this out. He says, He gave some to be apostles. These are different offices in the church. Some to be prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ, because somebody else wants to tear you down. Till we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity or mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're going for. Be Christ-like. So that we may no longer be children. Why? Because children are tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. So doctrine is important. And in fact, it is through doctrine that you become steady and mature and grow. That's what this text says. By human cunning and by the craftsmanship craftiness of deceitful schemes that's the devil and the liar but we fight that rather by speaking the truth in love and we grow up as a result in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body that's you and me who are joined to him devil leave me alone I'm stuck on Christ are held together by every joint uh, with which it is equipped and when each part is working properly when we're all diving into the deep end together and pulling out our brother and sister from sin. Then it'll make the body grow so as to build itself up in love. This is very important. This is how it works. Speaking the truth and in love. And that's such a difficult balance and I blow it all the time. I mean, it's easy to not say anything. That's easy. <laughs> I'm stepping out of that one. <laughs> hey, you go over here. <laughs> Let God deal with them. I don't know. I don't see anything. That's easy. Or it's also easy to blast them. <laughs> 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 
There, I did it. <laughs> they didn't say drown them. <laughs> said help them out. It's hard. It's hard to get it right. I don't get it right. We don't get it right. But we're all in it together. So James says, you know, speak it in love. Speak the truth. Don't sweep it under the rug. But do it in the right way. There's the hard part. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The correction that's needed is the truth. Do you know enough of the truth to fight the lies? Is it enough to sit here on Sunday morning and hear one little bit of truth per week and have that be it? Is that enough? It may help you for the rest of today. What about tomorrow? I'm not preaching at you tomorrow. <laughs> you need to do something. Truth. The cost of sin is death. The correction that's needed is truth. And so what then is the rescuer's reward? James chapter 5 verse 19 says this. It's basically, my brothers, you know, if anyone wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, let him know. Here's the motivation. James is trying to say, what's the real reward? Let me throw you a line. Guys, why? For whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul. Now I'll say his is the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, this is where people like to have a lot of fun because they're like, okay, wait a minute. Whose sins are being covered? Because it said his, and we think that reference refers to the sinner. Where is the multitude of sins? Now, my opinion, and the, most of the commentators I read, is that uh, basically this is, now I'll say the words and I'll explain it, supplemental and not chronological. In other words, what's happening here is the way the grammar is set up is that that will cover a multitude of sins goes with his soul from death. And so they both refer to this sinner. But in the same way, it's a little bit vague. And so I think what's happening is the apostle is allowing for sort of a both and dual application, much like in the danger of death scenario. So in other words... What he's saying is, look, if you save them from death, if you save them from either physical punishment or eternal damnation, you've done a great job. You've helped them to have a multitude of their sins covered. And then the Old Testament really, you know, speaks of it very well like that. And it says in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 85, you forgave the iniquity of the people. You covered all their sin. Proverbs 10, 12 shows how it works between brothers and says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sin. 1 Peter goes on and says, look, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's no coincidence that the Bible uses the word cover over and over again. Why is that? Does anybody know? What would be a reason for the Bible emphasizing a covering? <laughs> Old Testament, Day of Atonement, 
the high priest one day a year goes in to offer a sacrificial lamb and make a covering for the people's sins. He's sprinkling the blood on the altar, releasing the scapegoat into the wilderness, sending away all of the sins. The Bible has been talking about a covering for a long, long time. <laughs> the Day of Atonement is a big deal, and that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus' blood covers a multitude of sins, and it's enough to cover yours and mine and anybody else's. Amen. His blood is more precious, his sacrifice more effective, and his resurrection more powerful than all of our sins. And so we look at this last chapter, and it's a beautiful conclusion to this book, because James has been going through sins left and right. In fact, he has more imperatives or commands per word than any other book of the Bible. You're like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. And you're like, whoa, what is this guy? Earn, earn your salvation by works? And he's like, no, 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 prove your salvation by works. <laughs> you know, I'm not arguing with Paul. I'm saying Paul is right, and I'm not letting you use what Paul said as an excuse for your sin. And I don't want you running off the end of a cliff into a trap and destroying yourself. So I'm going to put it to you straight. This is how it is. Watch your tongue. Watch your anger. Watch your family. Watch your this. Watch your that. And over and over again, James goes through his list. He says, come on, guys. Be careful. Why? Because this is a life and death issue. And God disciplines whom he loves and punishes those who rejects him. And you don't want to be in either camp. And so summarizing the entire book, pulling it all together, James is saying, hey, look, guys, the cost of sin is death. The correction that's needed is the truth. And the rescuer's reward is the satisfaction of both saving and being saved from sin. It will cover a multitude of sins. Let me give you one beautiful example of that. And my only way to find one is really to look at Scripture. I think John the Baptist is a great example. He's a rescuer, the last Old Testament prophet that God sent. Now notice, this is one of those rescuers that gave his life. Right? What happened to John? <laughs> they didn't carry him around and say, Yay, John, way to go, hero. They killed him. That's what happens to a lot of God's prophets. That's what happened to the apostles. That's what happened to Jesus. It's costly. But here it is. This is the description of John the Baptist. And we'll conclude with this in a final word. It says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit prophesied, said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed or rescued his people and raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the, prophet, by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, Satan, and all the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, this is one of my favorite parts, so beautiful. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and, oh, in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the pathway of peace. In the words of the Apostle James, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Beloved, don't listen to the diabolo, the devil, for jealousy and selfish ambition, anger, uh, misuse of the tongue. These are the things that will lead you to death. In the end, we all struggle with them, but we ask you to take the matter seriously, to have the courage to rescue those who are drowning, even though it's risky and stressful and difficult, so that you may show your love for God and your love for man. For no greater love has anyone than this, than that they are willing to lay down the life for their friends. The cost of sin is death. The correction that's needed is the truth. And the rescuer's reward is the satisfaction of saving and being saved. Father, we thank you for saving us. Yours is the ultimate reward. Yours is the glory and the honor and power and praise. There's nothing lovely or attractive or beautiful. It was all risk with no reward. And yet you went in anyways. We thank you and we praise you and we worship you for you are good. We love you. We pray that you'd help us to serve you. We pray, God, that in our service for you that we would serve others as well. Thank you, God, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.